0: True righteousness begins within, from the heart. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Today is one of those... Fire fire hose messages. What do we mean by the fire hose? If you're new to us here today, a fire hose, you know, it's awfully hard to get a drink from a fire hose, isn't it? You turn that on, that stream is coming out of there. Uh, So you want to slow that down a little bit and get a drink from that. And so today then, there's going to be a lot coming at us here today because we're covering a good bit of ground in the scripture here. So what I always like to say in these instances is don't try to take it all in. Don't try to apply it all, all at once. We can't do that. But what I would ask you to do is right now, there where you are, in the quietness of your heart before the Lord, ask the Lord, say to him, Lord, what do you want me to hear today? What do you want me to hear today? What do you want me to take away from this message here today? So as we continue then now in our series on the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ want us to reflect once again for just a moment on true righteousness. You know, we use that word righteousness. What do we mean by that? Righteousness means what? Moral rightness, moral goodness, that God is righteous. That is, He is morally perfect. He is holy. Um, but it's not only an absence of sin and corruption, it is the presence of virtue, the presence of good. Righteousness then is ultimately it's God's perfection in every thought, attitude, word and deed. Think about that for just a moment. To be truly righteous, true righteousness means being absolutely perfect, being perfect like God in every thought, every attitude, every word, every deed. How many righteous people do we have here this morning, you know, based on that, right? None of us by that definition in and of ourselves, right? But righteousness then, that's why it's a gift that's given to us by God. It's God's own righteousness. And we see then it is something from within that is then expressed outwardly then as well. Expressed outwardly in our relationships with others then. But as Jesus was giving this Sermon on the Mount, He was confronting Pharisaic righteousness. Pharisees had a very different definition of righteousness. God's definition of righteousness is his perfection in everything. But for the Pharisees, it was what? It was an outward legalistic conformity to the law, to look good for others. But it wasn't in the heart. It was neglecting the heart. In the spirit of the law. There was no inner purity of heart. It was motivated by pride. It was self-sufficient. It was self-righteous. It was hypocritical. There were man-made rules and regulations then. But Jesus says, no, true righteousness is both inner and outer. It's an inner conformity to the heart of God which then results in an outer conformity to the law of God. And so it comes then only when we admit our insufficiency. And it is a gift then that is given to us and it's received by faith. Just as we saw Joshua the high priest during communion and reading in Zechariah 3 there, how it was given to him. Those pure vestments were given as a gift. And that's true righteousness then. So continuing then in our series on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're using this book called One Perfect Life, which is a harmony of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where John MacArthur has done an excellent job of putting these uh, accounts of Jesus' life and ministry together into one flowing harmonious account from all the four gospels then as well. And so we're going to be using that then as we go through our series here then on this life of Christ. And so we continue then. We we get started in the Sermon on the Mount last week, and we're continuing in that today. And here's the thought that I want us to take away from today here then. As we look at true righteousness, we're looking at true righteousness and external morality. That is the things on the outside. I want to see that, that, that the things on the outside... Ultimately, our actions on the outside begin with attitudes within, within the heart. And so, for today, true righteousness, then, true righteousness begins within. It begins within, from the heart. Today, then, is our second of six messages exploring Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. With this central theme, the whole, the central theme of the whole sermon is true righteousness. And it is in contrast, deliberately so, in contrast to the righteousness of the Pharisees, that self-righteousness, that hypocrisy, that, that outward conformity at the expense of the inward reality then. And Jesus shows us that God requires absolute perfection, and the reality is is that I'm totally incapable of that, and you are too. And so this sermon points us then to our need for a savior. So Jesus isn't just comparing and contrasting true righteousness with the Pharisees. What is he doing? He's showing them and us our need for a savior. Our need for a savior. So let's look then at, uh, first off, here comes the fire hose. Here we go, folks. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. That is the, the Old Testament scriptures. I did not come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So here I want us to see what Jesus tells us about true righteousness. True righteousness we see here fulfills all the law. Jesus says, do not think I came to destroy the law. Jesus didn't come to overturn it. He didn't come to say, oh, you know the, the, the things that, uh, that are in your, your Hebrew scriptures there? Never mind that. Here, I, I've got something for you here now. This is what you need to listen. No, he didn't come to overturn it or destroy it or, or to change it. He came to do what? He is the fulfillment of it. Here, Jesus is explaining then the true intent, the true intent and the significance of God's law. So I didn't come to overturn what's come before. I've come to, I'm the fulfillment of it. So Christ then, how, how did he come to fulfill? How did he fulfill? Well, Christ has fulfilled the law of God perfectly. How? Well, first off, because he was perfectly obedient to all of the, of the law's righteous requirements. So he is... What God requires of us so that we might be righteous then too in Him. He perfectly obeyed all of God's law for us. He also then, He is the fulfillment of the law of all of the Old Testament types and symbols seen in the Old Testament, like in the tabernacle or the temple, He perfectly fulfills all of those foreshadowings. He is the fulfillment of it all. So Jesus didn't come to throw it all away. No, He is the fulfillment of it all. And He reassures them and us, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Nothing is passed from the law, but rather Christ has perfectly fulfilled it. Now, it is true in the New Testament era, in the New Covenant era, there are certain elements of the Old Testament law which no longer apply to us today as followers of Jesus. Some of those Old Testament ceremonial laws, for example, those things which God gave specifically to the nation of Israel, those may not apply directly to us here today because Jesus has fulfilled those things But there is much of the Old Testament that does directly apply to us today then, right? You know, there is a movement on the part of some uh, that they want to kind of just disregard or throw away the Old Testament and say, oh, we're living in the New Testament now, never mind that. Well, first of all, we would not understand the New Testament if we did not understand the Old Testament properly, right, first of all. And second of all, much of that ultimate, it still directly applies to you and me, doesn't it? This is the law of God. So Christ didn't come to throw all that away. He fulfilled it all. And in fact, Jesus makes an astounding statement about it, about the authority of the Scriptures. He says, not one jot or tittle. A jot is the smallest of the Hebrew letters. And a tittle is just a tiny little extension of a Hebrew letter. So what's he saying? This speaks to the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. That not one letter will pass away from the law of God till all has been fulfilled. The authority, the inspiration of Scripture. And then Jesus says what? Whoever breaks one of the least of these and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom. That is, God will hold in low esteem those who hold his word in low esteem. But he will honor those who honor his word. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus says something that would have absolutely shocked and astounded those folks listening to him right then and there. He says what? He says what? For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means see the kingdom of heaven. And we might think, well, okay, what's so shocking about that? Well, because in their minds, who were the righteous people? The scribes and the Pharisees. And he said, well, you've got to be even more righteous than them. And they thought, they they would have considered the the scribes and the Pharisees. They're the pinnacle of human righteousness, and Jesus says, oh, you've got to do better than them. They would have been shocked by that. How much better than the scribes and the Pharisees do you have to be? Well, Jesus is going to tell us, before too much longer here, oh, you've got to be perfect. Wow. And then he begins to correct some of the things that they were being taught incorrectly. So he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, Shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way. Uh, With him lest your adversary deliver you to the judge the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison Assuredly I say to you you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penalty the last penny So true righteousness then it fulfills all the law But also true righteousness then seeks reconciliation seeks reconciliation with others See, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. This is the first of a number of instances where we see that. He says, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Jesus is not refuting the Old Testament law. He's not saying, Now I know, you know, once that it said this, but here's here's but this is what I mean now. No. He's saying, You have heard that it was said, but I see you. He was talking about those, he was correcting those who were distorting what the Old Testament law was preaching and teaching. So he's correcting what they had heard from their teachers. And he was correcting those things that they had heard from them, those traditions which they had taught, which actually were at odds with the heart and the intent of God's law. So Jesus is not endorsing murder as long as we're not angry about it. No, he's saying, you have heard... You shall not murder. But I'm telling you, it goes beyond that. It's not just that you don't murder someone. It's what's going on in your heart. Because ultimately, murder stems from the heart, right? And so he says, you may, Some may think, well, I haven't murdered anyone. Well, good, but have you been angry? Without cause. Not angry for a righteous cause, okay? Angry without cause. That's where it starts, right? In the heart. Angry without cause. Raka, an Aramaic word meaning an empty head. right? You empty head or you fool. Murder stems from an angry heart. So it's not enough just to say, I haven't murdered anybody. I guess I'm righteous then. Well, again, good that you haven't murdered someone. But... Righteousness demands, God's righteousness demands more than just not murdering someone. It's about a hard attitude. If you've if you've harbored unrighteous anger, insults, you've murdered in your heart. Therefore, Jesus says what? And by the way, when we're harboring these kinds of attitudes towards folks and them towards us, That rarely ends well, does it? And that's why Jesus then tells them, tells us to To vigorously seek reconciliation. Make it right. Fortunately, not too many of us go to the point of actually murdering someone, right? But we may be doing it in our hearts day after day after day. So Jesus says, make it right. Be reconciled. Vigorously pursue reconciliation. MacArthur says here, Jesus calls for reconciliation to be sought eagerly, aggressively, quickly, even if it involves self-sacrifice. And it is better to be wronged than to allow a dispute between brethren to be a cause for dishonoring Christ. Okay, here comes the, uh, the really tough one. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell." And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. There's a lot there. We're going to get to it very briefly today. True righteousness, then what? Fulfills all the law, seeks reconciliation, but then also it pursues sexual purity. Pursues sexual purity. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Someone might say, well, well I haven't committed adultery. I haven't cheated on my spouse. Well, Good, but the law of God requires more than not, not than just not physically engaging in that act. Like murder, it begins in the heart. Adultery begins in the heart. Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And ladies, you are not off the hook. This applies for you. You look to a man with lust, to, with intent to lust, that is adultery in your heart. It begins in the heart. Does this mean if you find someone attractive, you've committed adultery with them? No. It's what? It is a willfulness, a giving over of that, looking with intent to do that, and zeroing in and focusing in on that, and letting the mind go where the mind goes. That's committing adultery in the heart. That is because God's righteousness is what? Perfect in thought. Not just outward action, but perfect in thought as well. So you are guilty of that in your heart. And so what, is he, what does Jesus say? He gives some instruction there, which is not to be taken literally, but is to be taken seriously. Okay? Okay. What do I mean? Not to be taken literally, but is to be taken seriously. Can you pluck your eye out and still have a problem with uh, adultery and lustful thoughts in your mind? Absolutely you can. So what's his point? It's a metaphor. It's hyperbole to do what? To say, take drastic action to be pure, to pursue sexual purity. Take drastic action to, pure, to pursue sexual purity. Who is a great example of taking drastic action in order to remain pure? I'll give you a hint. It's in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. Joseph, right? What did he do when his, his master's wife, Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, what did she She wanted day after day after day, she was coming to him. And one day, what? She grabs him, and what does he do? He runs, flees, even leaving his outer garment in her hand as he's running to escape. And that's the picture there for us. Whatever it takes, take drastic action to stay out of harm's way. And then he says something, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. This is a complex topic that we're not going to cover all here today. But I want to see what Jesus is talking about here, his point in this. Here's what was going on. There was debate among the rabbis of their day about divorce. Some had a very strict view of that. Whereas there were others who seemed to think, that you could divorce your wife, a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever as long as he gave her a certificate of divorce as was prescribed in the Old Testament law. And so Jesus is correcting that attitude and that wrong teaching. He's saying, well, the, the whole point of this certificate of divorce that a husband would give the wife was a, a measure to protect the woman legally but it was then being used then unrighteously by these men to put away their wives for any reason whatsoever. Well, we have it right there. It says, you know, here, just give a certificate of divorce and you're good to go. And Jesus is saying, well, you have heard this, and, and you're, you're, you're being told these things, but you don't get it. You don't understand the sanctity of the marriage covenant. Now here Jesus does say divorce was permissible in cases of adultery. Now if you look at other scripture, you see are there other instances where it's biblically permissible? Sure. But the point here is not to get into an argument about what is or isn't permissible and if someone has been divorced, can they remarry and so forth. That's another topic for another day. What's Jesus' point here in saying this? He was coming against those who just had such a flippant attitude towards the seriousness and the sanctity of the marriage covenant, who thought you can just get get rid of somebody for any reason you wanted. Just give the certificate of divorce. And Jesus says, no, I tell you, if if that's your attitude and you do that, you're violating the law of God, and you're causing that person then to commit adultery because it, it is an unlawful dissolution of the marriage covenant. Much more to say, won't go into it today, but suffice here to say, then Jesus is condemning those who were wrongly violating the sanctity of the marriage covenant. He then says, "Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne." nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So here, true righteousness then fulfills all the law, seeks reconciliation, pursues sexual purity, but also then speaks the truth. Speaks the truth. Understand here, Jesus is not condemning the use of an oath. In fact, he himself spoke under oath at his own trial. We're told at other points in Scripture, the problem isn't using an oath. The problem is what were the people doing? is they were using oaths, they were swearing by, I swear by Jerusalem this, or I swear by the earth, I swear by the temple, I swear by these things that this is They were using these oaths in order to mask dishonesty, deception, deceit, and manipulate people and to be faithless to their promises. And they thought that they were getting away with it, because they were not invoking the name of God They were not swearing by God That what they are saying is true So they thought, well as long as I'm not swearing by God His name I can lie to you And swear it's true Because I'm, I'm swearing by what? By, well, by the earth By Jerusalem by what, Anything other than God's name and Jesus sees right through that and says, uh-uh. Just because you're not swearing by God's name, doesn't mean that you know it's okay now to be dishonest. In fact, those other things that you're swearing by rather than my name, don't swear by heaven. Why? Because that's God's throne. Don't swear by the earth, that's his footstool. Don't swear by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. In other words, what it all belongs to him. And whether you're using his name or not. It all belongs to him and you're involving him in your sin whether you think you are or not, you are. So what, is his, what does he tell us to do? Be honest. What? Let your yes be yes and your no, no. You don't need to swear. You don't need to say all that. Just be honest. Just be honest. Speak the truth. Be a person of your word who does not resort to oaths to try to deceive and manipulate people. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn and offer the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to everyone who asks of you. From him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Now here are some words of Scripture that can be gravely misunderstood and misapplied. First, let's talk about, before we talk about what Jesus is saying, let's talk about what he's not saying. Is he saying, Just accept abuse. Allow people to hit you and abuse you. And just just be a punching bag for other people's abuse. Just let evil people do whatever they want to you. Don't resist them. Let them do whatever they want. Or anytime somebody asks you for something, give them all you got. Anytime someone asks, give away everything you have. Is that what Jesus is saying? In the full context, no, that's not at all what he's... But, what, what, but he just said it there. No, but what is he doing? He, once again, he is coming against a wrong attitude. He's coming against a wrong attitude. And what he is saying here is that true righteousness surrenders personal rights. In other words, the law was given, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What is the context of that? Well, it's about their legal code, their Israelite legal code that God gave them. Now, we have an expression for that in our day, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We would say it this way in our day when it comes to the legal code, make the punishment fit the crime, right? That's what eye for eye, tooth for tooth meant. Make the punishment fit the crime. Be just in your legal system If someone commits a minor offense, you don't give them the death penalty. On the other hand, if it's some minor thing, you don't don't give them the death penalty. But on the other hand, if it's some serious thing, you don't just give them a slap on the wrist, right? So what were people doing? They were taking that principle and they were applying it then to every single little interaction with people, insisting on personal retaliation and vengeance. You insulted me. Eye for eye. What do I need to do? Insult you right back. Oh, you borrowed something from me and you didn't pay it back. What do I need to do? Well, I'm going to go there and just I'm going to take something of yours. Now he's coming against that attitude, saying, you know. Sometimes there are small things that we just need to let go and surrender your personal rights. When he says, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn it off for the other also. See, there Jesus is telling us to accept abuse and punish, you know, let people hit us, right? No. What is that? It's a way of saying being slapped on the right cheek was a metaphor for what? An insult. If someone insults you, do you have to give it right back to them? No. So Jesus is not saying to ignore criminal offenses. He's talking about the little things that irritate us or might impinge on our rights in some way. He's saying, Don't insist on retaliation for every little thing that someone may do or paying them back, but let it go. Surrender your personal rights And when I say that, it doesn't mean we completely surrender our rights and never stand. Jesus is saying, be a doormat that people can walk all over. No, again, he's talking about the little things. Let them go. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you who hear, "'Love your enemies and bless those who curse you. "'Do good to those who hate you "'and pray for those who spitefully use you "'and persecute you, "'that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. "'For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good "'and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. "'For if you love those who love you, "'what reward have you? "'What credit is that to you?' Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and the evil therefore be merciful just as your father also is merciful so true righteousness then surrenders personal rights and even dare i say it loves and blesses enemies you know interestingly enough jesus said he says here you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy or again he's he's coming against false teaching of the rabbinical tradition here can you show me in the law where it says love your enemy and hate or, or love where it says love your neighbor and hate your enemy? No. Half of it's there. Half of it's in the law. Which, which half? Love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. Where'd that come from? They made it up. I'll spare you. Spoiler alert. Don't go looking through your Old Testament to find it. It's not there. They made it up. It was how they were explaining, well, you know, you love your neighbor, and loving your neighbor means hating your enemy. You know, it's okay to hate your enemy, but you love your neighbor. But hate your enemy! So Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. Love even your enemy. Love your neighbor, yeah, and even your enemy, because your enemy is your neighbor too. And in fact, it says what? But even do good to them. And talks about how, well, you know, even the people that you think of as being evil or sinful and that, well, you know, they, they do good to those who do good to them. They give to those who give to them. They they do all these things because what? They're expecting something in, in, in return. But, but no, your love is to be such that you you love even those who don't love you back. You give to those who even don't give back to you. True righteousness then loves and even blesses enemies. And our last one for today here is anybody sensing that they're not as righteous as maybe they thought they were? If you're sensing that, that's good because you're supposed to. Okay, but if you hadn't got there yet, if you still think you're doing really well, if you still think you're you're, you're truly a righteous person, well, here's the last part right here: You shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what does God's law require of you and me? To be as perfect as He is. Now who thinks that they're righteous, right? And that's the whole point. You're not, I'm not. God requires perfection. Because if He didn't, He would not be perfect perfectly just would he truly be a righteous and just god if he just tolerated and allowed unrighteousness and all manner of sin no Say, would you be a, would you be a good parent if someone was harming your child you knew about this and you said well you know nobody's perfect uh I'm not going to do it. I'm not, I'm not going to protect this child. I'm not going to do anything about it. Because, after all, nobody's perfect. Would you be a good parent? No, you'd be a terrible parent, wouldn't you? So, would God be a righteous God if He required anything less than perfection? No, He wouldn't. So, God requires it because. He is perfect and righteous. It's, it's, it's What it means to be perfect and righteous and just is to require that then. But also, as I've said before, you want him to require that. You want him to require righteousness. Because if he didn't, what kind of world would we have forever and ever and ever? This world. Do you want this world forever and ever? No, you want. You want it wouldn't be heaven, would it? It wouldn't be the new earth. It would just be the old earth all over again. God requires perfection. But, but but nobody's perfect. Oops, I forgot to advance that. There we go. So the true righteousness is perfect. It is perfect. You say, but, but, but nobody's perfect. I agree. None of us are. God requires absolute perfection and none of us are. Well, almost none of us are. Nobody's perfect except one. There is one who is perfect, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why God sent a perfect Savior. And it's through faith in Him That we are joined with him in his perfect life, in his death, and in his resurrection. So this Sermon on the Mount, as we will see as we go on from here then, Jesus is showing us true righteousness so we rightly understand it, but also, though, showing us how none of us in and of ourselves measure up to it and have no hope of ever measuring up to it which is precisely why he came into the world in the first place is to measure up for it for us we've seen these terms before imputed righteousness we just read about it in Zechariah 3 today in our communion service imputed righteousness imputed means what to be given to someone your righteousness is given to you is a gift through faith in Christ. That perfect righteousness God requires, he gives it to you by faith. We call it justification. It's union with Christ and his perfect obedience. When you believe you're justified, you're made righteous by faith. But then once we have been made righteous by faith, we begin a process of lifelong sanctification Sanctification is what? Is the lifelong process of spiritual growth in which our thoughts, our words, and our deeds are increasingly conformed more and more to be like those of Jesus. And then it ends with glorification, final glorification. It's final perfection in practice as well as in position by what we have now as a gift by faith. You say, well, what do you mean? I've been given perfect righteousness in Christ, but I'm not righteous perfectly right now. Right now, no, you're not, but you will be, and that's glorification. When God brings that to a conclusion, when he brings you into, your, into his presence, and you are, in fact, perfect in practice and in every way, just as you already are by your position in him now. But it also includes what the resurrection of the body, when your body is made perfect then too, suitable for eternal life. But for just a moment, back to that lifelong sanctification thing. But until we are glorified, we all have work to do. But understand, note, we cannot work for our salvation, can we? That's a gift received by faith. So we cannot work for our salvation. But what can we do and what are we told to do? What are we commanded to do? We're told do not work for your salvation. You can't do that. But rather what? Work out your salvation. Meaning what? Grow. Sanctification. Grow through humble obedience and dependence on the power of God working in your life over a lifetime that's what we're called to do. So what? It would remind us where we started. True righteousness, then, it isn't just outward things. Well, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. Well, no. True righteousness begins within, from the heart. It begins when from the heart. It's not enough to conform ourselves to some outward standard. It begins from within. And it's perfect. It's perfect righteousness It's why we need a Savior. So I would say, trust in Christ's righteousness, not your own. Pursue lifelong sanctification from the heart. And then this one, I love this one, praise. Praise Christ for your final glorification. Trust, pursue, and praise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Uh, for this hope of final glorification that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a one of us here is perfect God, but you are Lord Jesus. Nobody's perfect except one. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your very own perfection as a gift. It's grace. We receive that by faith in you, putting our trust in you, turning away from self-reliance and putting our trust in you. Help us now then by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us to pursue that righteousness day by day for the rest of our lives. And we give you praise, Lord, that you're going to finish what you started, that we will be perfect in practice for you. And you're going to raise these mortal bodies and change them to be like the glorious resurrected body of Jesus, suitable for life forever on a new earth. Thank you for that hope. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.